Hi everyone, welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sophia, your content and podcast editor, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to this week's pod. Our very special guest this week is Andrew Vild, Business Development APAC for Kuva Space, a hyperspectral space technology company. Get ready for episode seven. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's pod. I'm here, your co-host Shree, and I'm here with Angela. She's a new member of our team. Angela, do you want to do a little quick intro? Hi everybody, my name is Angela. As Shree mentioned, I am new to the team. I'm currently working uh, as a marketing analyst for Greenfluence. Um, however, on the side, I am a student from Monash University based in Melbourne. So it's great to be here and I'm looking forward to a podcast. How are you fitting into Greenfluence? How's, how's the whole introduction, the whole getting into everything, the role? It has been really good. So it's a very, um, I've noticed that Greenfluence is a very community-based um, space. So it's a very forgiving environment and there's a lot to learn as well. And besides that, you get to learn so much about sustainability topics that are out there in the world. So to be a part of this group is really great. And just to meet new people as well has been a really good experience so far. Love that. Um, I, I know I know you've just recently completed um, an infographic for us that's that's been related to a article we put up about Evelyn Wang and her experience in the recycling industry. So that's going to be really interesting um, to explore and yeah, and like look into the concept of recycling and how well people really know about the industry and the impacts. Yeah, I think it's also great that she was able to give some really good advice for young graduates who are not too familiar with the space, such as me, I'm I'm new to the sustainability world. I started that last year. So I think it's really good to see her as a, a great influence for young graduates and young professionals out there that want to move to the space, which she does include in the article. 100%. This week, we have an interesting guest. We're covering space and reducing emissions. And I, when I think of space, Angela, I think of a lot of these companies like uh, the one that Elon Musk is uh, working on and all these big names come to mind and I don't really think I know much about the space. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic because um, space is a huge uh, concept to learn about um, but very interesting and fascinating as well. So it does take a village to learn a lot about them but um, yeah, it's a really good field and interesting to learn more about as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so without further ado, I'd like to introduce our podcast guest for today, Andrew Vild, who is the business development APAC for Kuva Space. Andrew, welcome. Thanks. Uh, yeah, great to be here. And obviously, um, from a, a different perspective, perhaps when it comes to space, how it ties into um, the sustainability um, side of things and especially the um, opportunities that it presents and some of the challenges as well um, that comes with obviously emitting a huge amount of carbon in getting things up into outer space. Yeah, definitely. I'm really keen to explore that area and I think those tuning in are, are curious to learn. Our community is is really interested in this space and just curious to to learn more and expand their knowledge. We've got a lot to cover, Andrew, in this week's pod, but I thought we'd start from, you know, where it all started. You initially graduated from a honours bachelor's degree in engineering, majoring in material engineering. Can you share what initially drew your attention to those disciplines and how this engineering field has shaped the choices you've made and where you are at in your career? Yeah, for sure. Look, I don't, I don't know how much intention there was behind uh, studying engineering. I did well at school with science and maths and I disliked English. And so engineering seemed like a way to never have to do an essay ever again. I had been interested in the environment from an early age, watching An Inconvenient Truth uh, when I was in my teens, definitely made me aware of some of the challenges that we were facing around the globe before it was, you know, spoken about so uh, commonly. 
And I was fortunate enough to get a cadetship at Blue Scope Steel while doing my degree. So I actually worked in engineering industry and that gave me a fair bit of exposure as to how many emissions and how much waste and how toxic certain industry can be. And I was obviously quite oblivious to that and made it my focus that I would try and make change from the inside out. I don't think in the positions that I held or the interests or the passions that I had, I was in a position to really make that change over the five years that I was there. And so that's ultimately why I decided to leave uh, Blue Scope Seal uh, when I did graduate and get my degree. And then I moved into the social enterprise space, uh, which I felt was going to be far more impactful. Right. Amazing. Um, And you've got a military background as well. That's really interesting. You've got a range of different areas and and industries that you won't really like you you don't really think someone would have (laughs) yeah look it's uh it doesn't seem like there's much consistency from the outside in terms of the eclectic collection of experience so the context of the military uh, is twofold the first i joined um once i'd started uh, my business with three others we worked in social enterprise across africa and asia Um, We worked a lot with university students in providing leadership training and then social entrepreneurship training. And uh, naturally, the military provides a really unique and uh, specific leadership style, and that's in a crisis. If you make a mistake as a leader in the military, you can get people killed. And so they're quite meticulous in the way in which they teach planning, risk management, operations, uh, and then also you need your people to follow you so that you know, they have that trust in you. Uh, And that did have parallels with some of the work that we're doing overseas um, in those developing countries that were inherently chaotic and and had higher risk. Uh, And then I continued on um, in the military beyond Project Everest um, with the intent to to get warfighting skills um, that would allow me to build a wildlife reserve um, out in Africa with, you know, ranges that would protect um, endangered species from um, poaching units and uh, that was the second kind of reason to remain within the military was to actually then work in the biodiversity space of of um, wildlife reserves. Right. And it's it's really interesting how you've talked about how different professions, even though they're not specifically interrelated, they can still have transferable skills. And we touched on this for everyone tuning in in a couple of previous pods we've done and even some of our members like this um, who has just started climate consulting at KPMG, but he, you know, had an actuarial background. So it's just so interesting to to compare and contrast different industry skills and um, how that can just reflect in your life and how you can take that in your journey ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I want to now move on to, to Kuva. Um, what is Kuva Space's vision and how does your role as business development APAC assist in achieving this vision? Yeah, of course. Uh, look, I'm still trying to find out a one-sentence descriptor for Kuva Space and I'll do my best um, given, you know, there's going to be a wide audience listening. Um, Kuva Space is a satellite company that, produces hyperspectral imaging. Um, So hyperspectral essentially is a a camera that instead of seeing red, blue, and green can see into the infrared spectrum. And it allows us to see what the molecular makeup of a material is. So when the sun reflects off a surface, our eyes see a combination of red, blue, and green that shows us that it's, you know, yellow, blue, pink, etc. Um, but there's actually a reflectance value based on the, um, the chemical composition of that. And so if it's concrete, steel, glass, and then within that steel or within that glass, you know, what materials make that up, that reflectance value has what's called a spectral fingerprint. And so our cameras can do a materials analysis um, and then we can actually do that from space um, with satellites about this big. Here's an image of one on my shirt. Um, and... Yeah, that, that stands to do um, some amazing things when it comes to earth observation, uh, whether it's across agriculture and improving um, how we do that to make it more efficient and use less land, less water, less fertilizer, um, predict pests and prevent um, food crises, or carbon accounting, um, you know, ocean uh, monitoring, water water quality, etc. So that I'll kind of leave it open for you to ask more specific questions to that. But um, the vision of Kuva Space is to essentially allow us to um, 
use this hyperspectral technology to play a critical role in, in land and water management and um, to create the world's most extensive constellation of hyperspectral satellites that um, can mean that we can make data-driven decisions um, in the best interest of the Earth. Okay, awesome. I, I remember we touched on this in our initial conversation and I was thinking about what does Coover Space have to offer that other satellite companies are offering already? Um, and I think we, we had this conversation about um, the, the actual satellite isn't as big as all these other competitors make it out to be. Um, it's not as big, it's not as expensive, and they can do the same job without, um, you know, using all these resources. So in, in terms of competition, I wanted to cover this this question on how Cuba Space has a couple of competitors in Italy, Germany, China, USA, India, uh, and a, a couple of different areas. So what competitive advantage does Cuba Space hold when contrasted to the competitors in the current market? Yeah. Look, this is a, in, in trying to keep this succinct, it is a tough question to answer. Um, I want to actually say, first and foremost, this is a, pretty much a new technology. The concept's been around for a while, um, but we're kind of, we, while we've had satel- um, scientific satellites that have hyperspectral capabilities, as you said, quite large, very expensive, um, and very, uh, what's the word, probably resource intensive to task it to look at a particular area of the earth. Um, and because there's only one, it might take seven to 16 days for it to revisit that same spot on earth. Um, and so to go into the commercial space using these cube sats um, that are literally about this big and 12 to 15 kilos, um, it, it is a new industry and there are a few players in it. And it's actually a really positive thing that there are a few players. Um, in the same way that when Uber came, all of a sudden you had Lyft and Ola and Didi and all these other ride shares. Um, it's proof that there's viability in the technology. People are prepared to invest in it, um, and that it you know stands to um, be quite um, impactful on the earth and, and thus you know profitable, which is how a lot of businesses obviously um, you know gear themselves. I'm not going to pretend to know what's going on behind closed doors with other companies in terms of the tech that they've produced. Um, however, we have designed this hyperspectral um, camera or filter um, in-house and it's not commercially available to anyone else. Um, where some satellites will be in the effect of 10 to $30 million and a couple of hundred kilos, um, we're looking to produce ours between 500,000 and 800,000 euro. So, you know, about 750,000 to a million Australian dollars. Um, and we'll be able to put 100 of them up into space by 2030. And that will allow us to revisit that same point on Earth three times a day um, to provide up-to-date data. Um, it also means that if one breaks, which, you know, once it's up in space, it's quite hard to repair or to fix um, we have that redundancy in place. Um, and then from an expense perspective, um, we can customise the, the data that we're collecting for, you know, the end user. Um, so if we're wanting to look at agriculture specifically, we don't need to look at every part of the infrared spectrum um, that affects, for instance, metal. Um, we can just look at what affects soil, um, you know, plant health and, you know, moisture content, for example. Um, and so... The other component of all of this is when we gather so much data, so when we take an image of, of one thing, usually with your camera, you take a red, blue, green photo, and that's just one. We're taking about 400 images at every single point in the infrared spectrum or along the infrared spectrum rather. Um, and then you need someone to go through those 400 images and find where that spectral fingerprint is to identify the material composition of something. Um, and so that's where a machine learning algorithm comes into play and allows us to provide insights that are easy to understand. Um, and we need those insights quickly as well. Um, and so I guess from a competitor perspective, we A, have a technology that is unique to us and gives us a lot more flexibility um, up in space. And I can't really talk to the details of it um, at this point, just from a confidentiality standpoint. Um, and then the other is the platform that we'll have um, for people to use. And, and that will be um, something that provides really easy to understand insights um, with a really quick turnaround time from receiving that data, conducting the analysis 
and then having that information available to you. Awesome. Um, and you said there's, there might be a hundred satellites by 2030. Yes. So the, the concept of the constellation is that you don't just put the one or the two up. Um, we want to have um, 30 up by 2025, 60 by 2027 and 100 by 2030. Um, and this allows a, a much higher revisit rate. And, and what's so important about that is um, not like the confidence the confidence interval of the data that we're collecting, um, but also the currency of it. So uh, let's, for instance, say we have a massive downpour of rain and there's contaminants in the water. Um, we're able to actually get that feedback quickly. Um, if there's been a disaster, we can assess the damage of that disaster quickly. Um, and, you know, even in the instance of the Great Barrier Reef, instead of having to take 1,500 samples across every water point of um, the eastern coast of Australia that leads into the Barrier Reef, we can fly a satellite over that strip and conduct a, you know, water quality analysis and see where the contaminants are that are going in, that's feeding the algae, that's taking the carbon dioxide out of the water, that's um, choking the coral. Um, and so we can get that kind of data in a day um, and same with methane leaks, oil spills, um, and all other environmental disasters that mean that we can provide a faster response to mitigating the damage that may um, occur there. Amazing. Um, and, and in terms of mitigating damage, I kind of reflected on this this concept of natural capital and with with the with the information that um, Kuva gathers through their satellites, they can use that to benefit. The, the natural capital we have um, and produce um, a, an avenue and this platform will provide information to organisations, like you said, uh, so they can actually protect natural capital and, and understand how to actually uh, sustain it. So on this topic of sustaining, how does Kuva plan to uh, sustain uh, their organisation and uh, I had this uh, look at the current climate funds that they have. So can you give us a bit of a background on that? Yeah, of course. So, yeah, there's there's two or three components to this. Um, the first is uh, the, the obvious here, and, and that is we're launching, you know, material from Earth into space, and that requires carbon dioxide to do so or, you know, burning of carbon that produces carbon dioxide to do so. Um, and then the, the second component is... What is the impact of what it's doing once it's up there? Um, and so in terms of offsetting, you know, existing carbon, um, it's such a tricky market and, it, you know, it's a, almost a whole other podcast because an offset isn't actually taking carbon out. It's preventing future emissions. And then you can kind of claim that against your bank statement of emissions out versus emissions in. Um, and then the sequestration is, is the key one where we're actually removing carbon from the atmosphere. Um, and so part of that second question that you had, which is the climate fund, um, part of our focus is um, getting investment from climate funds who are focused on investing in climate tech um, or providing capital to climate tech. And um, for us, we're raising $23 million um, later this year. And we don't want to raise all $23 million in equity because it means we'd have to give a large portion of our company away. Um, so we're doing part of it in debt funding or in um, yeah, in grant funding and the other part in equity. Um, and the Climate Fund is a huge um, component of that. The other opportunity in terms of our future activity is um, comparing um, data over time. So collecting data every day with our satellites means that we can look at um, this, the carbon content of soil in, say, 2020 and then, or rather 2022, which is where we are now, and then in a year, two years, five years, we can see what that carbon content is um, over time and see how much carbon's been sequestered um, on these agricultural fields. It's obviously far less labour intensive than sending someone out to take soil samples at particular points. And it also means that we avoid um, some of the nationally embarrassing debacles that we experienced of late with the Australian government's um, carbon credit scheme, where there was a heap of um, defrauded carbon credits. And so we can actually provide that extra layer of verification that means that we ensure that occurs. Um, and if we can increase the efficiency in the way in which we measure that kind of thing, um, we can very quickly, especially given how large agriculture is, um, actually remove from the atmosphere the carbon that we, you know, we have emitted in getting um, these devices up into space. That's interesting. I think going forward uh, with with the climate fund, I think 
it'll be interesting to see where you guys are at um, and and where you, you know, take it. Um, and, and in terms of carbon sequestration, what's your view on the current carbon policy? I know you've just uh, touched on it, but the carbon offset um, initiatives by, by our government, what's your view on the effectiveness of it? I'm not going to, I won't speak to the Australian government's um, policy and, and the effectiveness of their program uh, as someone who, who isn't, you know, obviously doing it day to day and incredibly well versed, but from a general concept of how we approach it, um, it makes sense, but it's not happening fast enough. And what I mean by that is a carbon, carbon offsets are positive for now because they're focused on reducing our future emissions. And there's no point taking carbon out of the atmosphere if we're still just pumping carbon into the atmosphere at a much greater rate. So it makes sense to me that we incentivize people to reduce those future emissions by investing in climate-friendly initiatives and, you know, turning things to renewables and everything else. I think the best kind of layman's way in which I learned about how that kind of works is from the movie or the book 2040. And they essentially describe the graph of where we need to reduce our carbon emissions down to zero. And then from there, we need to start removing them from the, from the atmosphere through the sequestration process. And that can be done with kelp, that can be done with regenerative farming, um, and it can be done with tree planting. Um, and all of those things can be assessed by hyperspectral satellites in terms of understanding vegetation type, density, um, and you know volume, so to speak, across um, land, and and that helps us verify those um, those carbon credits. So, in terms of your question on our approach to carbon credits and the Australian government, I think hopefully we will be working on improving that system, and. I think that the whole industry itself is a little bit broken, but it's a start. At least carbon credits are increasing in value because there's a high demand. Um, but we just need to make sure that we are measuring and monitoring them appropriately um, so that we don't have these fiascos where we're claiming credits where they don't exist. And that's where this hyperspectral imagery is critical for that. Definitely. Um, we shouldn't be approaching a future where we are claiming credits when they don't exist. I just think it's a really uh, good point that you made before about the political influences that can happen within our Cuba space. You mentioned about the Australian government with the defrauding the carbon uh, data and how that can play a huge role in um, what Cuba space is uh, trying to do and even just the thought of technology advancing. Like this is really huge stuff and it's just incredible to see how much it's been progressing as well. So just on a more uh, business organisational uh, side, so do you think there could be opportunities for research organisations to partner up uh, globally to access the information that would be collected within Cubaspace? Yeah, 100%. There's there's two kind of sides to this. Um, the first is research and the second is um, industry case studies. So uh, the CSIRO, as an example, or the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, or you know, rural New South Wales fire service, same for Queensland. They're all um, doing their own kind of work on developing technologies to try and mitigate you know their own environmental challenges. CSIRO are working on a thing called AquaWatch, which is um, focused on water quality. Um, Great Barrier Reef is focused on preserving the Great Barrier Reef, and then you know, with all the bushfires that we had um, prior to La Nina, we're obviously wanting to make sure that we can assess and mitigate those um, challenges surrounding, you know, future fires. And so we want to do research with universities and with organisations on how our technology can assist them and how it can help. And then going one step further, we want to obviously collaborate and um, work with industries to um, show how our technology can assist um, industry become more efficient save costs or improve um, productivity, especially when it comes to agriculture. And I think we're kind of like, as everyone knows, in the information age where big data companies like Facebook and Instagram are hugely valuable because of the data that they hold. Um, data can be used for good or for evil, depending on in whose hands it is and what they want to do with it. Um, and so this is an opportunity where we can democratise, you know, quality data for the environment and we can actually provide a huge amount of data to a lot of people at a really low cost um, that allows us to make better decisions on how we choose to plant um, food, how we measure water quality, um, you know, how we assess environmental damage or whether our programs to improve the environment is actually working. That historical data will, will give us indications for future methods on, on what we're doing right and what we're not. Yeah, 
No, awesome. And I think it's really good as well that um, these types of organizations are trying to contribute as much as they can, because it kind of, it leads on to the idea that sustainability is a community space. And just to have um, like universities and other organizations is a really good example of that. And um, yeah, it's just amazing what partnerships can do. Just another follow-up question I want to add in is, do you think a collaboration between the various organizations involved with space um, slash astronomy uh, can provide benefits into how we as a society can view climate change. Yes, and I think we can use a really recent example um, to kind of cement this. We just saw NASA's um, imagery that they released of deep space and it you know, was shared across social media like you wouldn't believe and it, and it changed you know, our understanding of the universe. Imagery is kind of like proof and while I definitely um, surround myself with a lot of people who do acknowledge um, the impacts of climate change and, and the risks that it poses to our planet, there are a lot of industries and there are a lot of people who don't actually acknowledge that climate change is a thing or they think that it's a natural process or they don't think it's a, a problem that we should be focused on. And so having the data that we can collect available to see and to actually prove the damage in which um, is occurring through human activity is critical. Um, it makes it really hard to deny something when you have an image of it and you're like, see in 2022 how the soil was of this quality or the water quality here was like this um, or the you know the kelp um, population was this large and now it's seven years later and this is what you know this is what it looks like. You, you can't deny that kind of data and that's why this earth observation is critical to me and it is worth, you know, the carbon emissions to get these things up there so that we can actually make sure that we don't repeat these mistakes and that there's no way that we can try and claim it's not possible because these satellites see everything across the entire globe. You can't, you know, just make it a no-fly drone zone where you can't fly the drone over the farm to see what's going on. Um, we will have that visibility. There will obviously be privacy laws around it, um, but it means that transparency will exist um, when it comes to the environment. Not beautiful. So um, I read in a recent article um, that stated the CEO of Kuva Space, which is uh, Yako Antia, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, stated in October 2021, and this is from a quote, um, with our daily global service, farmers have the opportunity to access relevant cost-efficient information on their fields and guidelines to optimise their growing conditions and use less land to grow more crops. That means decreased environmental effects while increasing income, end quote. Would you be able to explain a little bit more about uh, that and about the Green Data platform that was mentioned? Yeah. Um, so the Green Data platform that was mentioned is essentially, you know, a, a technology that we've registered as our our platform in which we're going to provide insights. Um, and the idea of is that, that it simplifies the way in which you can access data and it can be used for several applications and market areas. And, and one of those areas is um, crop condition. So hyperspectral imaging um, can help us see the condition of vegetation, so the health of it um, at a larger scale because we don't need to fly a drone over, we don't need to fly a helicopter over, we can actually send the helicopter over, uh, correction, the satellite over. Uh, and on top of that, it's not just red, blue, green. So us trying to assess the vegetation health from how green it is, um, we're actually able to see the composition of, of that vegetation. And so that would indicate, you know, from high potassium or high nitrogen, whether it is a healthier crop and whether there's disease. And so this can help with yield forecasting, um, crop monitoring, and um, with the addition of carbon monitoring, it'll open possibilities for farmers to not just learn about their vegetation, but um, earn a second source of income through carbon credits as well. Um, and so the most important thing with this green data platform is the, the time series information. So we're not taking a single measurement on a single day of a single thing that's never to be used again. Um, we're collecting that data as those satellites flow, fly over, um, you know, all day, every day. And those um, allow us to understand sensitive and small changes um, and trend monitoring. Um, and increase like that accuracy of doing so. Um, so as I'm sure you can imagine, flying it over every day as opposed to once every 16 days means that we have more up-to-date information and we can see those micro changes um, in you know how moisture content or a particular pest um, is affecting crops or even whether a fertilizer that we're using is effective or not. And um, as we've seen with the Ukraine war, fertilizer costs have gone up five times. 
So even from just an operational expense, if you can reduce the amount of fertilizer you need to use by 25 to 50% because you know where to put it and, and what part of your land requires it, um, then that's going to make huge impact as well. Very interesting. I think it's really good to have this accurate data as well, just so um, like obviously the agriculture field can have a bit more insight into what uh, carbon emissions are happening as well, which is really interesting to see. Um, and just a follow-up question from that, how can Coover Space extend its research findings towards improving sustainability initiatives, including agriculture, as mentioned earlier, particularly in developing countries where technology may not be the most highly advanced. Yeah, I think this is really important and um, it kind of ties in a little bit to my experience with Project Everest where we worked across Africa and Asia. Obviously, these high-tech, hyperspectral satellites with our fancy green data platform are not super accessible or you know easily understood by a subsistence farmer um, or even you know a commercial farmer in a developing country where internet's not great, um, access to technology is, is more difficult or just not affordable. Um, and so that's where I guess having this democratization of, of data is key, um, but then also making sure that we're working with the relevant stakeholders. So in Australia, we could approach, um, you know, a large agricultural commercial um, business to, to sell our data to. However, um, for the developing world, that's where we would look to work with governments and government bodies. Um, and in my experience across Malawi and Uganda, there are these dedicated agriculture um, uh, like government agencies that exist to provide advice to farmers and, and to run particular initiatives on the ground. And so if we can provide macro data to them that says this particular region of your country, you know, is in drought or, you know, is forecast to have lower yields because of these three reasons surrounding moisture content, fertilizer quality and crop health or a particular pest, um, we can assist them in making better um, data-driven decisions um, that allow them to then prevent, you know, a food shortage because they can forecast what's going to come through and they can also ensure that they're providing the right resources in the right locations. Um, and that that's super important because if you just throw too much fertilizer on, it just washes off in the rain, goes into waterways and then has other um, impacts, you know, in ecosystems downstream um, from, you know, them putting it onto their farm. Interesting. And one last question from me, just to stump you a little bit. Why do you think research and programs in space are important for the future of our planet? It's, it's validation um, and it's credibility. And I think the most important is it's independent assessments. Um, it's all well and good for us to assess our own impact. It's all well and good for us to say how good our platforms are. Um, but at the end of the day, if we have a master's or a PhD student writing a thesis or conducting research um, into the uses of hyperspectral data for a particular industry using our data, then that actually means that we have someone independent of us, um, you know, being able to provide that credibility. Um, and with that increased visibility of what's happening on Earth, especially on a molecular level that hyperspectral imaging allows, um, we can actually see real time whether climate actions are working or not. And therefore, that can influence regulation, policies, and it also can... Um, promote industry best practice and so we need that re research to occur um, while the Coover Space team is incredibly intelligent and they're building you know these satellites and their software engineers they're not agricultural industry experts they're not carbon sequestration um, you know industry experts they're not um, marine observation experts so we need to do that research with these organizations in collaboration to validate whether space technology works and if it doesn't work then we should stop um, but thankfully we're not the first to do it in the sense that there are satellites up there from scientific missions that have proven the value of it. We're just trying to do it at a commercial level. And just for the interest of the viewers listening, where would um, we be able to find uh, such data from Cuba Space if we were interested? Yeah, I mean, the the standard, you know, our website's always great because we put the information there that, that we want to have there. Um, so our website's good. Um, we have a space blog where each of our staff take turns writing about um, you know, the state of the world with respect to hyperspectral imagery. Um, so that might have to do with national security, it might have to do with sustainability, or it might just have to do with the technology itself. Um, LinkedIn's always a great place um, as well to kind of, you know, type in the hashtag hyperspectral imaging or hyperspectral satellites. Um, and then, of course, I'm always happy to, um, to take questions. Um, I've recently been a little bit more active on LinkedIn, having had a few cool experiences um, that have, you know, given me 
uh, motivation to, to post about what we're doing. Um, and I've had a fair few people reach out and, and want to have conversations, want to ask how to get jobs in this industry, things like that. Um, and so, yeah, always happy to have that conversation. Beautiful, because I recently uh, went on the Kuba Space website and it's, it's a really cool looking website and it's just very informative as well. Awesome. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> awesome. Um, I want to sort of go towards Project Everest Ventures for a couple minutes. Um, your This is your previous company. Um, which collaborated with impact partners and local communities on a global scale to develop sustainable solutions to issues using a business model. My understanding is that the organisation no longer exists, but for a time it collaborated with leaders in technologies um, or new business models that aimed to develop innovative ways to solve issues around environmental sustainability, agriculture and food security, health and economic empowerment. In your previous company, you worked with three other co-founders um, and uh, you you worked with them developing this social enterprise um, conducting market validation across Africa and Asia, um, and your business was focused on microfinance, solar energy solutions, anti-poaching technologies, agriculture advice, and menstrual products to keep girls in schools. You also had taken some impossible task building operations to support over 50 plus staff across East Africa, Southeast Asia, and you establish relationships with clients in Australia, Singapore, Europe, and, and many others. Um, I also was interested in this concept that you touched um, called digital divide. It's such a big thing that can increase someone's standard of life, their level of education, and their digital literacy. What drove Project Everest Ventures and how did you measure impact? So, uh, yeah, what a mouthful all of that is. Um, try and like tell people what you do on a day-to-day basis when you were working for that company. It was just like, I don't, I just, it was too hard. Um, but uh, look, I, I will keep it um, as succinct as possible so you can ask um, directed questions. Um, as you know, I was frustrated um, with my engineering degree in Wollongong. Um, I didn't want to work as a steelmaker and I wanted to find a way in which we could improve quality of life and not work as a charity. Um, The reason for that is charities are fantastic for the function they provide, but they're reliant on a source of income that is independent of the work that they do. So you have an economic downturn and their donors stop um, funding that particular charity. It doesn't matter how good the work is that you're doing, um, you're going to stop. And so we wanted to tie our entire business to the concept of if we're providing a product or a service that is inherently socially beneficial, Um, that it's affordable and it's needed and it's wanted, then people will pay money for it. And as long as people are paying money for it, um, we'll operate as a a business and we will continue to exist and people will continue to benefit. Um, And so we aligned ourselves with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. We looked at the countries that had the greatest opportunity for, um, for improvement and yeah, I guess we just decided to, to go down that path of starting businesses that would, um, promote, you know, a, an increased quality of life. So it's an obvious one. Menstruation products keep girls in school, allow them to get educated and improve their future earning capability, um, prevent them, reduce the amount of children that they have by five times because they've got sex education. They don't need to rely on a male um, to buy them menstruation products, um, you know, to, you know, buy them food. So then from a, from a sexual safety perspective, um, they don't, they have more control over their bodies. Um, and then, you know, that that then means that they can spend their time actually developing their career out. Um, solar energy made sense because we could reduce the amount of candles they used for light at night and we could actually reduce their um, expenses over a six-month period. It was cheaper over six months for us to microfinance this, this solar energy product than it was for them to buy candles every day. Um, and so, yeah, we, we worked with universities to... Um, you know, work on these technologies. We worked with industry partners who came up with these amazing ideas or amazing technology, but had no concept of how to do market validation in a developing country. Um, and then we worked with students in the leadership and entrepreneurship space to to get them to be a part of that um, process of building those businesses up. 
Uh, and why? I don't know. It was my best life's work. Um, I loved it. I rocked up to work every day excited. Um, and it seemed to me like a pretty obvious um, way in which to spend my time and to do business. 100%. Um, and just on that note, uh, we we also touched on impact investing, gender-based impact investing in our previous pod with Giles, uh, which should be available by now um, for anyone tuning in. But just reflecting on this concept of keeping girls in school can literally impact their earning capacity, that can impact their financial stability, their financial independence. And in a developing country, a third world country, that can mean a lot, um, especially when your society doesn't support it. So, yeah, definitely such a big a big area to to be involved in. You are currently juggling a, a lot of jobs, studying at all at the same time. Um, the founder's life can be quite glorified. When we look at the Facebooks and the Teslas of the world, it can be very tough jug- juggling so many facets of your life. What keeps you going and what keeps you up at night? Look, I'm, I'm semi-glad I'm no longer a founder um, at the moment, uh, and that's just because it was exhausting. That said, it is also probably the most motivated and driven I've ever been in my life, um, and that's because you are owning your space, you're owning your purpose, you're owning your direction. Um, you know, you're living your life's work and you are just, I don't know, everything that you do, you have control over and, and you know that you can influence in the right way. The other side of the coin um, is it is stressful. You need to constantly be seeking where your next amount of revenue is to pay your staff, to maintain your office expenses, to you know maintain the the website expenses that you have so that people can know about you. Um, and every decision that you make is is um is critic is not criticised but is um, analysed by your people. Um, you know how you spend your money, how you spend your time. Um, you know is is looked at as a reflection on your business. Um, and so, for anyone who wants to start their own business, I definitely recommend it. But please, like, understand as well that it's not just the Facebooks and the Teslas and the glory. Um, we we definitely are subject to the success factor of you know Beyonce gets up and talks about how you should live your dream, but you're not seeing the other million people that tried to be a world famous singer and, and, and failed to do so. Um, and that's not to discourage you. It's just to, to obviously go into it with a little bit of um, knowing that it can be tough. That said, if I knew how hard it was, be- how hard it would have been, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But for me, I, I moved away from being a founder and to becoming a part of the bigger picture. I made a conscious decision that I didn't want the ego of being a founder to prevent me from not being a founder. And what I mean by that is, it's obviously quite nice to be able to say you created a company and you are the reason that it exists. Um, but that's not reason enough to, to start a business. And when I came across Coover Space, saw how amazing their technology was, saw the experience of the team, um, I saw that as an opportunity where I was like, I will learn a lot from these people. And if I can be a cog in the bigger picture machine of all of this that enables their mission to occur, um, then that's that's honourable in itself and that will give me that purpose um, to do so. Um, and, and so that's why I have ended up approaching Coover Space and, and, you know, finding a role with them, which is amazing. Um, I am also at the same time still in the Army Reserves as a lieutenant um, and then I'm also doing some contract work um, for the Navy as a, um, a project manager for them. Um, and that's to just kind of, yeah, keep head above water in terms of earning an income um, while trying to make all the other stuff happen on the side. Um, but I think what it all comes back to in terms of what keeps me going is just remaining aligned to my purpose. And for me, that is to leave the world in a better state in terms of the environment than I found it um, and to prevent, you know, our future people on our left and our right from from doing much more damage. And um, if that's a wildlife reserve, if that is, um, you know, hyperspectral satellite technology that, you know, tells people what they're doing right or wrong and improving food security and allowing the carbon market to, to thrive and succeed, um, then awesome. Um, and I'll yeah, continue to do that in whatever form that looks like. Right. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I think it goes to show that everyone's journey is different and you've just shown us that you don't necessarily have to be a founder to, to feel good about yourself. It's more about where your purpose is and where your purpose um, 
is going to be leading you in your life and how that fits into your own journey. On this, on this topic, um, what are your thoughts of PEB and uh, what's next in store for the concept and, and the team? So uh, as you kind of mentioned um, in the introduction of Project Everest, um, I previously was there. Um, we just dissolved Project Everest literally a couple of weeks ago. Um, we did not survive COVID. Um, I'd made the decision to leave Project Everest just before COVID um, did hit us. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, but obviously we couldn't promote um, or we couldn't continue to work in communities overseas with COVID. It just wasn't socially responsible to do. So I think the reason that we failed, um, we had some of the wrong drivers behind our investments. So we had some amazing investors who were really, really good and really incredible. And then we had um, you know, some others who who wanted to to see go in a different direction as to why we started the company in the first place. And we became reliant on a model that wasn't sustainable and, and that kind of tied into this um, student, um, you know, students going overseas and getting like a lot of those grants from um, the Australian government and from universities to enable that. Um, and then we, yeah, we just, I don't know, we tried to do too many things at once. We were across India, um, Cambodia, Fiji, Uganda, Malawi, India, I said that already, Timor-Leste. Um, and, you know, we were just we were juggling so many balls, going in so many directions, taking the whole, if we do a breadth approach and then we have one or two successes, we'll pursue them. But it kind of just meant we're chasing the two rabbits who went that way and we got none of them. Um, and we did do some amazing work, but, yeah, COVID just cut that short. Um, that said, the team are amazing who have been involved with this and, you know, to name a few, one of the founders, Jess Arvella, um, you know, she works for the Marine Conservation Society now and she's doing amazing work with them. Um, one of our um, team who worked in recruitment, um, she uh, now work Rose Gooding, she now works as a senior sustainability analyst at um, Goodman Fielder. And speaking to her, like she's having a tough but an amazing time, you know, kind of stepping into this role and going, all right, how do we make an entire industry um, sustainable? Um, and, you know, all of our people who have been involved with us have, have taken that experience and, and gone and done amazing things, whether it's working, you know, for Accenture, Google, Atlassian, um, KPMG, whatever it is. And, and a lot of those have, have ended up working in the sustainability space. So we definitely positively influenced our, our staff and our people. Um, but unfortunately, from here, I don't see Project Everest reviving in its, in its current form. Um, but hopefully it has inspired others to to take on that social enterprise approach. Well, that's really good to hear that um, even though it didn't work out that your members of your team have gone on and, you know, um, landed all these amazing jobs and they're continuing in their respective fields. So it's really good to hear. Yeah, it's awesome. So good. Yeah, fantastic. So um on another topic, you got to experience an amazing opportunity to spend a week with many other fabulous entrepreneurs and impact investors, and none other than Richard Branson at his private island, Necker Island. Um, wow, first of all. Um, also, so from your LinkedIn post, there were you mentioned there were grand networking opportunities throughout the week that you got to participate and observe in an array of presentations and workshops including uh, you being able to represent Cuba space. So just first of all, what has that experience been like for you? Yeah, uh, look, it was phenomenal. Um, it was out of this world. The opportunity came up in the same evening that I um, met Trishti at the Greenfluence, uh, correction, at the Climate Salad um, event. So um, someone came up to me and said, I love your tech. I love how you spoke. Would you like to come out to Necker Island and meet Richard Branson? And I just looked at him like, you know, he was pulling my leg and I was like, yep, cool, next question. Um, but no, look, the the, the opportunity to, to go and to do that was amazing. Um, don't get me wrong, the island was incredible, but it was the people um, that the island attracted and, and it was part of a, um, a conference called Forming Impact. Um, it's an organisation designed to bring people who want to impact the world together to one space um, where, you know, one side of it is the investors who want to invest in socially conscious things and the other side being entrepreneurs changing the world. Um, you know, the most impressive person there was this um, 26-year-old French woman um, who is a aerospace engineer and she is designing a hydrogen electric airplane. They're launching their first prototype in October um, in Paris and then the intent is that they'll um, 
you know, build this um, eight-seater hydrogen and electric plane that will hopefully re- replace or provide an alternative option in the private jet space because um, private jets are one of the uh, biggest emitters per, you know, person in terms of the carbon versus getting that person somewhere. Um, and it's it's a massive challenge and, and she wants to kind of solve that and then be able to scale that up to, you know, commercial airplanes. And so, you know, there's me, I'm kind of just rocking around at 30 and there's this woman here who's about to change the entire, you know, um, aerospace industry. And I was just blown away um, at her intelligence and her passion. And they're the kind of people you want to be surrounded by. Um, so, yeah, it was an amazing opportunity to, to spend some time in the Caribbean in warm weather and escaping the Australian winter. But, um, yeah, the people were phenomenal. Yeah, amazing. And I think it's really good. And I think it's a very inspiring uh, experience as well for you and for many others that were involved. So good on you for that. Um, how do you think this, uh, this week that you spent at the island has shaped your views on how organisations or communities can collaborate to make the world a little bit more of a sustainable place than it is? Yeah, look, I mean, the experience of, of even spending a bit of time with Richard Branson, I probably had breakfast with him two or three days, played tennis with him and hung out in the pool here and there. Yeah, like he's super generous with his time, right? Um, and, and his approach was he wanted to create this island that focused on bringing people together and creating these alliances or these groups that would you know, go out and change the world. And I think the the biggest thing that I took away from it is you don't need to know all the answers. You don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Um, you just need to be someone who's prepared to collaborate, to take on others' perspectives and to work with them. Um, and, you know, the network was amazing. Um, you know, as I said, there was um, Eloa who had the hydrogen electric airplane. There was a guy called Nick Turner, um, you know, his... Uh, an African-American who had one of his mates robbed at gunpoint, you know, trying to buy a phone on Facebook Marketplace. And so he created an entire platform focused on doing marketplace exchanges to increase the safety, you know, for communities in America to be, to be able to buy and sell from the Facebook Marketplace. Um, you then had someone designing these disaster response telecommunication units. And then you had all these investors there who were like, I can connect you with this person to connect with that, to connect to hear who can invest in you or can provide advice or introduce you to this industry. Um, and so it, it highlighted the importance of, of your network. Um, and I think, you know, the saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know, unfortunately is a huge component um, in this world. Um, and especially people who care about what you care about, um, who have experience. And as I kind of mentioned earlier on, um, you know, who also have the resources um, to do something about it. And these people, were you know very successful in their lives and then wanted to give back and and reinvest into you know technologies that would change the world and and that collaboration piece is is key because yeah you can bang your head against a rock over in the corner over there and and you're not going to get very far but um as soon as you find a group of people who are prepared to to do something about it um magical things happen and and i'll tell you what it was some of the most productive six days I've ever seen on that island. Oh, fantastic. And I love how you met, how you value so much about networking and being with other people as well with similar mindsets and having that diversity as well is really amazing. So just on this note, um, you can never tell how much you know without listening to other people and exploring different perspectives. That rings true in our lives at Greenfluence, but we also want to get your perspective on this topic. Um, you found this opportunity while pitching Coover Space's vision in a climate salad event, which we also met in. So how do you view the importance of networking and the value it holds in your life? I mean, yeah, as I kind of touched on, but, you know, I'm glad we're focusing on this. Um, it's critical. Uh you know, I wasn't even going to turn up to that climate salad event. Um, I'd met someone a week before who um, had just retired from their job, who mentioned who I'd bumped into in the street, and they asked about this shirt. And then they, I was like, oh yeah, you know, it's a satellite, blah blah blah. And they're like, oh, what do you do? And I talked about the sustainability side. They then told me to come along to climate salad. I then turned up to climate salad. I wasn't even going to present at climate salad. And in the last second, I was like, can you put my name down to present for? 60 seconds on what we do um and then you know from that i obviously met the greenfluence team um and i also got offered to go to neko island and you know from there met other people um and i think yeah the 
climate salad event, but also other networking events that align with your interests are just so important because your network um, is also what keeps you accountable. Let's just say you decide you're going to be more sustainable and you're going to reduce your plastic use or how much how much meat you eat or um, you know other lifestyle decisions. If you're surrounded by people who don't support those values, they're not going to pull you up on it when you do it. Um, in fact, they'll probably encourage you the other direction. Um, and so similarly, if you're in entrepreneurship or you're wanting to make the world a better place and you surround yourself by brilliant people um, who are also interested in that, then they will push you, they will connect you, um, they'll challenge you and they will um, you know, provide support for you to, to make that occur. Um, so yeah, I can't speak, I can't speak more highly of it. Amazing. Um, I, I definitely agree. I think networking can go such a long way. Um, and I know just from going to a couple of networking events, whether it's Climate Salad or uh, the, the Fishies or any other climate-associated um, organisations that hold events like, um, like Climate Salad does, it's such an amazing opportunity to just expose yourself to a range of different perspectives, a range of different views, um, and just educate yourself about different areas and expose yourself to the world around you because you just never know everything, right? So, yeah, just uh, couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and, and those tuning in, Greenfluencers, um, we could not encourage you more to reach out, network, get in touch with Andrew. Um, are you open to LinkedIn conversations, Andrew, from uh, Greenfluencers? Yeah, always, always. Awesome. So those tuning in, go send Andrew a message if you are curious about anything we've just chatted up about. Okay, amazing. We've just covered a range of different topics. Thank you so much for being on the pod, uh, Andrew. We're going to just uh, do a speed round. So this is just going to be just a couple words um, on uh, three questions. So are you ready? I'm ready. I'll be as succinct as possible. (laughs) Okay, awesome. What advice would you give to your younger self? Um. Oh, just be kind to yourself. We put so much pressure on ourselves to like be successful, be happy, earn money, have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and find your life partner and have the kids and just like, holy shit, I'm sorry. Uh, it's just like take it easy, um, be nice to yourself. Like I think we we get embarrassed about how we behaved at 18 and then at 25 and then we look back at 25 and embarrassed how we behaved at 25 and like, no, nah, we're, we're doing our best jobs we can, um, you know, take people's advice but how we've always done it isn't working um, and how other people think you should live your life is their opinion not yours so like find your own path and just enjoy it and it doesn't matter whether you have a certain amount of money at a certain age or have a certain career just enjoy it mm, exactly be easy on yourself and enjoy being in the present 100 percent uh, the second speed round question from me uh, is what career opportunities are out there for the fresh graduates or young professionals that might be listening to this podcast um, if they're wanting a career in the space or astronomy field? So many. There's a lot of jobs uh, going everywhere. It's a growing industry. Um, Australia is trying to be at the forefront of it. Um, obviously, you need to have some relevant experience, whether it's technical or you know um, business experience, um, especially as a fresh grad. But then that said, uh, we're you know, we're looking, we've got a huge job board for our Finland um, team at the moment. Um, It's just a matter of researching the companies that you want to be involved in and then working out why, researching it and then going for it. Um, Don't just go into tech because it's cool. Don't just go into it because you want to go to space. Like understand the capability of the organization you're applying for and the problems it stands to solve and then derive your passion from that. And they'll see that you're passionate and that you're excited and that you're prepared to put in the hard work. And I mean, yeah, the world's your oyster. Awesome. Finally, where can listeners um, and the Greenfluencers tuning in go to learn about you and your organisations? Our website, obviously, um, is great for Coover Space um, and, you know, the space blog that we have. Um, I'm trying to use LinkedIn more, so definitely don't use me as a good example um, of how to use LinkedIn, but um, I'm putting more up on there and that's a great way to get in touch as well. Um, you know, as you already said, I'm open to anyone reaching out. Um, you know, make sure it's a measured 
kind of reaching out, hey, this is something specifically I want to know about um, and this is what I want to do. Do you have any advice or whatever it is um, when, you know, you kind of just reach out and it's like, hey, I'd love to hear more about you. And then that's it. That that makes it very hard. Um, obviously, we're all busy in our days. And and I think it's important that in everything that we do, there's, there's intention there. So think of the problem, think of what you think the solution is and propose that. Um, I do that with my boss all the time. Um, but I do that when I reach out to people as well. I, I research them and make sure that I I know what I'm asking for or what I want to get out of that interaction. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing your journey as a founder, your current journey on Kuva Space, your life learnings. It's crazy how things happen. You can never tell how much you know without listening to other people and exploring different perspectives, like how you found the Richard Branson opportunity, which you found in Climate Salad Event. Thank you for um, your time today, Andrew, um, and I wish you all the best in your journey ahead and I'm keen to follow Cooper Space's journey. Um, Angela, do you have any last words? I think um, just one thing I want to point out is the power of intuition. Imagine, Andrew, if you didn't sign up for the Climate Salad event and look where it's headed to you now. And I think it's a really important lesson to learn for us and for the viewers as well, just to be have that intuition. No, thanks so much. I love what you guys are doing. Obviously, I've listened to a few of the podcasts now and reached out to um, one or two of your guests actually to um, yeah try and hear a little bit more from them. So I'm, I'm definitely one of those Greenfluencer fans. Um, and yeah, I think what you're doing is fantastic. Thanks so much, Andrew. Really appreciate your time. What'd you think? I thought Andrew's tenacity and passion to not only become a founder of a company, but be a part of a trailblazing one like Kuva Space speaks volumes about what anyone can do, no matter your background or even age. If you're new to Greenfluence, thanks for joining us. And hopefully you feel inspired to listen to our previous and future episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate it and are so excited to grow our Greenfluence community. If you'd like to get in touch and become a Greenfluencer, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. All the links to our socials are in the show notes. We'd appreciate if you leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. And we'll see you next time. Bye.